After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton. Cam Maitland is still doing the festival circuit. You guys, I may never get him back. I'm really hoping I do, because we've got some great guests coming up. But right now, I have a fantastic guest with me who I'm going to bring on right away. Gavin Booth is with me. Hey, Gavin, how are you? I'm good, but I'm confused. They make movies in Canada? They do. They do. I know you've been spending a long time in the States, and you were in Windsor, which is right on the border with Detroit. Like America comes here and makes movies movies in Canada? They do do that, but we also make our own movies. We have this thing called culture that we're trying to preserve and opinions about our own people. And you've seen these movies with your own eyes? One or two of them. Occasionally they stream on American streaming services like Amazon Prime. Heard of it. Yes, you get to see some of that stuff sometimes as long as you have a VPN. Or or live in America. Or live in America like you do. Yes, yes. What are you doing in Canada? You you heard of Hulu? It's awesome. (laughs) It is awesome. I agree. Uh, What are you doing in Canada? You're an expat. Oh, I, it's funny. I moved to LA and then like many people that move there, you, you get the majority of your work here. I still direct a lot of Canadian music videos and just shot a Canadian feature here. And it's, it's, uh, you know, my hometown's Windsor and it's very cheap for me to make movies there. And, you know, if you want the tax credits in the Canadian film system, it's it's good to to hold hold legs in both both countries. Exactly. We'll take you. We'll have you back. Sure, just, yeah. Just yeah. that you can bring more work here yeah. from the Americans. Are you working with American bands or Canadian bands? Uh, both. And both. some from Britain and all over the place. Yeah. Whenever, whoever will hire you to make things that look cool. Yeah. I, it's funny. I did it backwards. I started because living next to Detroit, I used to sneak into concerts with a fake CBC pass and try to interview the bands. And, <laughs> and one of those bands hired me and I just kind of went and shot their tour video. So I did it backwards. I started in the U.S. And then and then came here. No, yeah. well that works out. I mean, that's really where the money is. That's the conversation. So you've actually Fair. been in my home for almost what an hour and a half now. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Yeah. We've just been talking about how you make movies. Yeah, I don't have anything left to say on the podcast. So no, I hope you recorded some of that. I got it. No, I got nothing. <laughs> and trust me, some of the things we said probably you know want to leak. But uh, especially about how great your new movie sounds. I'm so excited. Oh, do you thank want, you. Can you talk at all about it? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I own the rights to it. I can do whatever I want with Yay! it. You want to screen it right now? Give it away on your website. No, we. Uh, we have a film we literally literally wrapped post production twenty minutes before I drove over here, so it's very fresh. Uh, had had first people who have ever seen it outside of like our team today, so it's very good. But it's a film called The uh, Last Call. It's about a man who's planning on committing suicide, but already drunk and taking pills, uh, misdials when he tries to call a helpline and connects with a complete stranger. And that stranger, when she realizes what he's up to, decides to try to stay on the phone with him. But the way we shot the movie. It's in complete real time, and no, there are no hidden cuts, so don't ask because I'm tired of being asked. Uh, no, it, it, it's a true uh, real-time single-take film, but we shot it in split-screen, so it's technically two single-take films side-by-side, side, one camera following each of the lead characters for the entire duration of the movie. So it was, it was sort of fun and just something experimental that that uh, I've wanted to do a real-time film for a long time. I had something in development with Telefilm that uh, got squashed, as it happens. And uh, when David Wilkins, the my co-writer on this and producer, he brought the idea to me and said, I have this concept. I think it could be in real time. I know you like real time music videos and real time films. And I said, we could also do it in split screen. And we said, yep, yeah, this is insane and we shouldn't do it, but let's do it anyways. So what comes first, the story or the gimmick? The story, because the gimmick doesn't work if the story doesn't work. Uh, Tell we, that to William Castle. Uh, <laughs> 
I think I think it's it's interesting. No, because every the you use the gimmicks to, to sell things, but and I I do love real time films when I've seen them, but I've also seen some where you're like this just doesn't serve any purpose and and it's the gimmick. Uh, but with music videos or, or shorts or anything, when it, when they are done in real time and done well, it's compelling. You need a story where there's a reason to not ever cut from it, to to not ever alleviate tension or the drama and just see things unfold and even just long sequences in movies like anyone can get a steady cam guy and do this cool thing but if it doesn't have a reason half the time it tends to drag the movie down and you know it's also like it's an interesting it's it's like a play essentially without even any scene breaks so you really have to make sure that it it, it speaks to people and there's something always happening and uh, you know, even in some, we'd be like on one side, it lags a little bit, but we have both stories side by side. So there's always something to look at. So we, we had less of an issue writing a real time thing than if we'd just done a single camera. Which is kind of fascinating because you bring that into the idea of the stage play. And with a stage play, mm -hmm. especially if you have multiple people on stage and there's a group scene, you have to tell the audience where to look and how to direct sure, that. Yep. And you got to do the same thing with a camera, but with more subtlety because you can't be like, look, I'm turning up the lights on this side of the stage. Well, right? what's fun on this is because we, they essentially, the actors only communicate over a telephone. So mm -hmm. they're actually acting live over the phone. Uh, but we can change the perspective of fading left and right sometimes of who you should focus on more. Uh, the split screen actually is sometimes horizontal, sometimes vertical, and the bar kind of between it rotates around. to So it shifts perspective based on mood and things that are happening. Sometimes we play with just the thin like movie effect telephone voice, and sometimes it's the full thing. And, and then music, my, my composer, Adrian Ellis, he said this is one of his biggest challenges because he said there's no scene breaks or fade in and fade out or new days or you know anything new characters being introduced once it starts so he's like it's really weird to figure out where the music should start and end without it being really awkward uh, and he actually took on the challenge he said to me half as a joke i well i mean you did the movie in one take i should score it in one take and i said that's exactly what we're doing yeah. so last wednesday in windsor for an audience of high school kids coming in to learn about film scoring he completed the soundtrack in a single take. That's incredible. Did, you, did he have them bring their like state mandated oboes and tubas and they're like helping? No, to we did not use any of the oh, high school. Okay. There, there wasn't a recorder section anywhere, <laughs> anywhere in there. As the Canadian uh, early education system demands, you learn, uh, you know, um, three blind techniques. mice yes, on exactly. the uh, on the recorder. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, so speaking of uh, films that don't necessarily happen in real time, but I think they have a shift in point of view of how time works. Mm -hmm. You brought a movie today that I had heard of, had not seen, am so glad I have done, uh, but you love it. What movie are we doing today? Uh, we're talking about Heater. Heater. 1999. Oh, 1999. Yeah. yeah, this one is really remarkable it's on amazon prime which i'm so happy because i i honestly thought i i joked earlier i said i'm gonna have to fly home to toronto go to one of the last remaining queen videos and dig for it in a box in the back room but no lo and behold it's on amazon because i did i remember owning it on vhs or dvd um but i've long since sold my dvd collection or a lot of those movies i would lend out to people and then they, they never come back so I actually haven't seen this film. I hadn't seen this film in years. So I'm, I'm super happy it's there because now I can tell everyone else, watch it, you know? It's so good, guys. It's mm -hmm. so good. I highly recommend watching it. I don't know about its rewatchability because it is very bleak. It's um, definitely bleak. But the first time you see it, it's mind-boggling. It's really nice and tight. You don't linger too long. It's an hour. It's like, what, an hour and 20? It's not yeah. even a full hour and a half. It's great. Can't the, recommend the it enough. Fil and the film is almost... Not in a single take, but in real time. You're watching the events. You know, it falls in that, like, it's like a really depressing, like, Clerks or um, uh, Empire Records or Days and Confused, where it's, it's the, the one day in the life, the slice of life in one day of these characters. 
And it's two characters that you may not necessarily follow. And I mean, we're going to get into that, mm-hmm. how it's um, totally unsentimental, but it's also not too gritty. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the wrong hands of someone who was unsympathetic to these characters or too sympathetic to these characters, this could have been an utter disaster. But it's not. It's stunning and like nothing I've well, ever seen Well, it's before. interesting because, you know, the movie is, is about the homeless. Yeah. And, you know, these are people that many of us just pass on the street. And even though we're the most sympathetic human beings, it just becomes part of daily life that you just start to tune out. Uh, so I think the opening of this film, you know, when it starts in the welfare office and, you know, you, you meet this you meet this character and he very much he's got a situation where he can get into kind of like a halfway house or like, you know, a thing and, and then get a job program. And he doesn't want to be on the streets, but because of like basically a clerical error and paperwork isn't going to have his home and they're in uh winnipeg they're in winnipeg, winnipeg. So in the dead of winter yeah. yeah which if you haven't been there is hell it's called winter peg here for a reason there it's we go vile. Yeah. yeah it's 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 cold so you know this the story just becomes this simple thing the heater in the story becomes this baseboard heater which is stolen and uh the two care these two characters end up with a baseboard heater from sears which is still oh like, it's eaton's it's oh, from eaton's. eaton's sorry wow yeah, look at me yeah which is uh, any American listeners is the Canadian Sears. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, they end up with this baseboard heater in the box and the receipt. So the, the mission of the movie, their Lord of the Rings becomes, we will get to Mordor, which is Eaton's. We will return this heater and get whatever the, the value, the 20 or the 40 bucks or whatever it is. We'll get the value of it. And then we'll have the money to stay in a shelter, at least for tonight. So their whole mission is immediate and not to freeze to death and spend one more night on the streets of... Uh, Winnipeg, but then through a series of happenstance and misadventures, uh, nothing nothing goes as planned. But we we learn a lot about it. it it's interesting because it's it's a heavy handed topic. Yeah. It's a topic that it's just as relevant now, if not more, than oh, when the movie so. was created. Uh, but they do it in such a way where you're just you're just with these characters. It feels very real. It reminds me of movies like uh, Kids, like Larry Clark's Kids, where I mean, not it not as is ter- really? you know horrific and gritty as that, but gritty in a sense that these it feels real it feels like they just what do they call it? like cinema verite where they just put a camera with these characters and said go where you can completely buy especially when i saw it i, I didn't know gary farmer i didn't know i've seen him in tons of things now i didn't know any other work i didn't know anything about the director there was no i hadn't read reviews or seen trailers it was just i watched it so you you instantly just get sucked into a story more when it's like that but that opening scene when things aren't going well it goes on forever and then there's another problem and another problem it's just this unflinching like please just let this man win something and they can't they don't get to win anything Mm -hmm. except for the time they get away with stealing something and they assault someone so when they do it's because they've had to commit crime yeah and when they get commit a crime that's when they get away with it and it just takes them a little bit deeper right now the police are looking Mm -hmm. for them now they've stolen something from the donut shop and you're just like oh god can't these people just get but a you're break. like it's like the uh, uh what was the movie uh murder in the first with kevin bacon if you ever yeah. saw that like he ends up in alcatraz and has this terrible a true story experience of like the case that closed alcatraz but it's all because he stole a loaf of bread to feed his family during like the depression or you know in, in the poor south and you're like just give these guys a break like please you just don't under, you know and it's the, and that's what they want right the the audience knows where they're coming from that their crimes aren't crimes as we think of them 
Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just heartbreaking and you do really get to see the way that society just doesn't even respect these people as humans for the most part. I think that's part of the brilliance of the film. So you talked a little bit about, um, the way it's shot and, uh, the cinematographer on this then went on to do a uh, fuck. Same with the editor. So the people working on this are like top shelf. So the editor of this then went on to do like almost all of, um, Sarah uh, Polly. He did Sarah Polly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also, he did away from her and he did Guy Madden's saddest music in the world. Yeah, yep. Um, he also did, uh, all of, um, oh, what? Paul Gross's films, uh, oh, okay. like all, all the war movies, yeah. which are yeah. edited beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he's done all of that. The cinematographer of this has again worked on a ton of top shelf stuff. So he's working with a team that's unbelievable on these like small close quarter stuff. Ninety percent of this is shot gorilla. So they didn't. Oh have, wow. Yeah, they didn't have permission to shoot in a lot of these different places. So they're just wandering around with just the director yeah. and the camera and the sound guy, hoping that they can get the shot and get what they need. Right. See, it's all. See, now I'm learning that it's in the spirit of how I create most of my movies. Mm-hmm. It, it, I just there's a reason that I found this one you know I hadn't even I hadn't shot my first short or feature when I saw this movie I was a kid dreaming of making movies but you know maybe maybe there's something in that that I identify in the movies I love that even the style and the way they're made are the way that I've kind of like because I'm half the time I'm like I don't have the money I don't have whatever I'm just like what's the worst that's gonna happen they're gonna kick us out and we have to go somewhere else and try it again but this is a movie that I think lends itself to that. The story of this movie lends itself to that. So if you were shooting, like, say, a Marvel movie mm-hmm. in this style with this kind of budget, you couldn't do it. But because you're telling a story handheld with yeah. two guys, and it's a very scrappy movie that really could only come out and of And I the guess 90s. if you get, like, a focus buzz or a camera shake, it only just adds to the, like, the immediacy of knowing these characters where you can't go back and do another take because... You, you've got limited times before the, the police pull over and ask for a permit. It's yeah. all film. And Winnipeg's far enough north that you don't have any light, right? Mm-hmm. So you're like, okay, how are we going to shoot any of these outdoor scenes? Yeah, the exterior stuff, are, especially in the snow, where you got like a whiteout and just trying to balance that with characters. So I, I do think about that with this movie, like even just the costume design, where, you know, everything had to be in consideration that you're constantly against this bleak whiteout background. You know, that's not easy to balance. Well, talking about the actors, too. So there's two main actors here. You already talked about Gary Farmer, mm-hmm. uh, who is in absolutely everything. Go look him up if you don't if you don't know him already. As well as uh, Stephen Ouimet. I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. Um, he apparently did not bathe for the duration of this film. No, like he's he method. Went, he went method. Um, they are like, maybe. Well, that he, shows. It does. Yeah, yeah. It does. He's playing. It, it, I think it's schizophrenia. They never mm-hmm. say what he has. None of, the, none of these characters have names. Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, Gary Farmer's playing a car- character called Ben he identifies himself, right? But doesn't no, no, he, the he doesn't. No. He just has the jacket that says Ben on it. But mm. I mean, who knows where he got that jacket? Oh, because right? yeah, it's all hand-me-down clothes. And, yeah, yeah. And then uh, the other dude's got, just called the man. He's the one with the heater, and yeah. obviously he's worse off than Ben is. Ben's yeah. still somewhat capable. Well, it's interesting. That, yeah, it's it's just the uh, the the idea of like the the friendship. Even even if you're on your 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 worst times, hardest times, like you can still be a mentor and a big brother and a friend, you know, and, and lend a hand to people that are, that are even more, you know, obviously the man has more mental health issues than Ben. Uh, but just, just the fact that even, even in the most bleak, bleak of times, humans can find each other and band together. I think what I'm fascinated about this is that structurally it's a road movie where they literally just yeah. have to cross the road to get to the mall. Yeah. But it takes them all day to cross the road and get to the mall. Like, they don't get to the mall until 5 o'clock. Yeah. And that's the entire point of this. And so with that, you're reinforcing how challenging it is for the homeless and, like, how a simple task like shaving or showering or, mm-hmm. like, waking up in the morning is almost insurmountable. Well, um, this, this is again, this how much, like, the movie sticks with me. Because, again, I, you know, full disclosure, I didn't do a full rewatch of the movie before I came on here. Uh, because I was saying you you had started Facebooking me like 
read this link and, and, and there's all this information. So I'm like, I just kind of want to go to the podcast, learn all of this stuff, and then rewatch the movie with fresh eyes I haven't seen in years. But if I remember correctly, there's a scene where they end up in a, a hospital or facility and it's, it's, it's his feet, right? Yeah, that are, his feet are like, all messed fr- up. Frostbitten and like, that is, I haven't seen the movie forever, but those images and that scene have stuck with me forever, you know? Because it's like, it's it's gross, but it's not gross and a like, look at how gory we could be. It's just, this is reality. And this is this is a sad reality. And we're going to force you to understand what, what people of lesser fortune go through sometimes. Do you want to know where this movie comes from? I do. Okay. So Terrence Odette, who mm-hmm. directed and wrote this film, his wife is a former nurse who actually used to work oh. at the corner of Sherborne and um, Sherborne and Queen, mm-hmm. where there's a bunch of halfway houses here in Toronto. And he, this actually happened where there was a bunch of guys who would always try to sell her stuff mm-hmm. at the shelter, especially like things like steaks, like very odd things. And then a dude showed up with a giant baseboard heater. Oh, wow. So, was, it's, so it's based in truth in, to, to some degree. Exactly. And so he just kept ruminating of like, that the beautiful irony of the mm-hmm. fact that you're homeless and this thing will keep you warm in the winter, but, but you have nowhere to plug, to plug it, it in. in yeah, is yeah. just fascinating, and so and just hauling this thing around the city. Where did you even get this from? Yeah, you yeah. know, um, of all the things you could have stolen, mm-hmm. this is the thing. So I think the fact that he had that grounding in reality because that's what his and wife he essentially does. only the character only stole it because it had the receipt. So there was a plan of like. This has value because we can take it back to the the retailer. Yeah. Exactly. But even that goes horribly mm-hmm. awry, right? And the the issues of the homeless trying to look normal. What does mm-hmm. normalcy look like? And there's like a remembrance of like, oh, this is how you operate in society mm-hmm. when you're not having to like figure out your survival every single day. You watch Ben slip into different modes of like, oh, I'm now talking to a position of authority. I'm now talking to someone who has something what I need. How do I Yeah, he's I got he's got that? the street smarts and and the, the sort of like business class where he can go back and forth between them yeah whereas the man is completely out and now he's just operating on pure survival where he's like he's willing to steal he's willing to grab when he eats he just shoves things into his face right so you're like that's so interesting how you have different levels of operation even within and i I always thought even the first time i saw it i thought ben's doing this just for tonight he just need he'll he'll figure out this landlord situation and, and the halfway home uh tomorrow but for the man, this is this is it. This is the only thing he's ever thought of. He doesn't have a plan for tomorrow. He doesn't have yeah. a plan for anything that comes next. This is what this looks like. Mm-hmm. And where is the net that will catch yeah. him, right? So like Ben has figured out how to work the system. And you get the idea, and I think this is great, is that it's not a movie about paperwork, but paperwork is the inciting incident. Yes. Um, of how challenge, like there are people that will help you fill out the paperwork to get access to the resources that you mm-hmm. need. But even the fact that he doesn't have ID is completely destroying everything yep. for him, right? Like how, what is the basis level of paperwork you need to do to be functional in society? It is, it is crazy when you, uh, I mean, even just just applying for my green card when I when I was moving to the US and they're, they're asking for, you know, records of, of vaccinations I had as a child. And I'm like, mom, dad, who, who like, you know, the, their divorce is like, we, we don't know, you know, probably burned it, for, you know, burned it in a fire somewhere <laughs> along with all these other things I didn't want. But yeah, you just think you're like, how, how am I supposed to know in my thirties that that is something that I need to have for the rest of my life? It's like, I'm an adult. I don't have polio. I can move on with these things. But yeah, you, I even think back as somebody, you know, that hasn't been homeless, who doesn't have those struggles where everything should be stored away somewhere going like, I don't have that. Where do I find that? How do I get it? Uh, and even trying to dig back and, and look for records like that, then hospitals go, oh, that 
that got deleted and you know the files got burned in the great fire so you're gonna have to come in and get those shots again i'm like well is that healthy i already had them like can i be more reinforced exactly yeah yeah will this now give me chicken pox i don't (laughs) uh, but yeah so it's crazy that even things that we you know if you lose your passport or anything like it's even as a fun, like an employed person who contributes taxes and everything else, it's it's a difficult process. Yeah, where there's a record of you existing mm-hmm. in society. You have a job. You have a SIN number. How does that look? Yeah, but if yeah. you've been essentially off the grid forever, then wh- where do you even start? Yeah, and that's that's the question. Where mm-hmm. do you even start, right? And apparently it's starting to have a shower, which is very, very slow. Like you just see the luxury of being able to have a shower. Mm-hmm. And again, this is all unsympathetic. He just shows people doing this yeah. with like a shaky handheld cam and you're like, oh, I get it. I can empathize so much. And that's, I think true art is like i'm just going to show you this thing mm-hmm. and then you imprint on it whatever you feel yeah like they don't they don't print. force your hand to believe or think anything of of, of the people i think i i sort of characterize the the man and ben they're kind of like a very sad jay and silent bob yeah they do have like this way that they bounce off of each other and play out like like they're they're like Bob and Doug, if they were homeless for 20 years, yeah. you know, oh, that's the so mecha- you know what I mean? Like, but yeah, there's yeah. that childlike quality to mm-hmm. them where they're just trying to get along and they, they look, there is like a looking after each other yeah. sort of thing, but at what level, right? But it's always, it's always interesting to me because it, like I said, I made the Lord of the Rings comparison. Like we have to take this thing and walk to here and get through all these obstacles. But like, they do. But in their, in their head and in their world, it's, it's a huge mission where any of us would be like, well, we hop in a cab, we go there and it's over, Yeah, you know, or I'll, I'll call a friend for a ride or I'll take my own car. Or whatever the situation is, but they they don't have that. So it becomes this massive obstacle they have to overcome. And there's, I mean, the fact that they're also hauling a giant heater. So you get the actual visual of this thing as they're kind of going along, which is is stunning. But you also get the visual of the two of them because Gary Farmer is not a tiny man. No, Uh, He's absolutely huge. And then um, Stephen Wiemet is this like itty bitty skinny guy. So you do already Mm -hmm. have that, uh, that visual. Also, Gary Farmer is indigenous and they are so smart to not lean into that too much. No, not at all. All. There's some cases where you're like, oh no, that is an that is an issue. Like you have the police officers at the end, and there's one really smart moment when they're in a bathroom where you see a scrawl of graffiti, which is mm-hmm. incredibly racist against yeah. uh, Aboriginal people, and you're like, oh, that's so smart that you have these little subtle tinges. What I, and I think, and again, I don't, I don't want to get political, and I'm, I'm, I'm all for inclusion of everything, but it, it's also not a casting where it's just like we got to have one of each. It you was know? written for Maury Chaikin. Oh. That's it. But he apparently passed on it. And okay. then he was like, okay, who else would do this? And he was like, oh, Gary Farmer. Gary yeah. Farmer would be great. They just wanted the best actor who it's... happened to be Aboriginal, and then they could adapt things slightly. So yeah. with the with the with getting the Indigenous actor, that actually showed up later. And mm. then he talked to him about it. Like, how do you think this is? That was purely collaborative. How do you mm-hmm. think this should appear? How much should we lead into it? What do you want to address? And Gary Farmer kind of helped him guide so that along. what? I don't. I don't know. Do you know what the budget on this film was? How it was? was is it through telefilm? Thirty thousand dollars. Is that all it was? All it was. This oh my is God, a- this movie I just made. It's everything. It's everything that like reflects on. Thank you for making Heater, people. This yeah. is my favorite. This Ta- is was der- Terrence Odette, and you actually Terrence have Odette. a lot of things in common because he also was a music video director. Oh, no kidding. So he learned he probably to- made music videos that I love and inspired me to make music videos. Probably. Look at this. Yeah, he worked fast. He worked tight. And I think there's a there's a, a big argument about music video directors who now make films. Mm-hmm. And Spike Jones is, I think, one of the very few people mm. who is able to find what the narrative of the song is and mm-hmm. then find a visual that works along mm-hmm. with it. Because often when you see music video directors translate into film and television, 
television, it becomes like spectacle. As well, half the, and half the time they go like music video to commercial. Everything, yes. everything's gloss and sex appeal you know, to to dumb it down. And then in the films, like I mean, obviously we're talking about Michael Bay here. Like that would be one of the one of the the, the most recognizable examples. ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but at the same time, like Michael Bay made some, did make some music videos that had great stories and, and are, are forever remembered, like the uh, Meatloaf, um, I Would Do Anything for Love, the Beauty and the Beast music video. Super stylish, probably like a $4 million budget. But it's funny, too, because there's movies like, you know, I, I never think, I always feel like that kid 20 years ago that saw this movie that I don't, I don't often think of these people as my peers, even people my own age, like Warren Sonoda. And, you know, very, very well-known Canadian director. Uh-huh. Uh, always tell me he needs to stop directing so the rest of us have a chance to book anything. <laughs> uh, have, have become very good friends with Warren and, and respect Warren's work very much. But like for years, I was a little intimidated to meet him because I'm just like, oh, you're you're much further ahead than me. You'll, you'll never be able to see me as a peer. And now I'm sitting here thinking like, I should call Terrence because it sounds like a fascinating lunch, you know? Yeah. No, totally. Or and just call him and let him know, hey, I loved your movie and I want I want you to know about it. I find not enough people do that in the industry to say, I heard your new album. I love it. You know, that's it. I don't want anything from this. I just want you to know that the art you made is great. Yeah, I like the yeah. thing you do. I think for me, it's adding on just that extra layer of like, okay, you did this thing. Mm-hmm. How did you do this thing? Because I think 90% of this, and I was talking to uh, Adam Wilson was just mm-hmm. here doing another podcast, uh, and we I was talking to him about this, is that when you look at what someone does and you're so inspired by it and you say that, I want to do that, you'll never be able to do that because mm-hmm. they did that. Yeah. So how do you, because they were that specific yep. person, specific time, specific budget, specific experience, et cetera, how do you then use that thing that they did and put it in your voice? Sure. That yep. thing, right? Like so. if you, you know, like uh, bad examples are like when clerks come out and then everybody wants to be the fast talking, like smutty comedy, you know. But I think this has a lot in common with clerks and that clerks could only have been made for that budget mm-hmm. at that time with those people. Of course. Same with this, that budget this time. Like this would not look good if this was like a fifty million dollar. They shot movie, it on right? film. Exactly. So I now I want millimeter they shot that Now I want to know about like the post favors and everything else that got got this movie made or, or how many takes they could even do. One take for most of it, mm-hmm. which is. But I mean, you're also working with theater actors who res, who know how to. But rehearse, even then, right? you, you know, you get a, a camera shot. You want it. You know, have, it's not. It's rarely the actors. It's always some technical challenge, a bad sound. You know, a light bump. Anything. You know. You get it or you get it. Or you I don't. Know, or you I don't. Know. You just shot a movie and all I know, one take. I know. I know. You know yeah. Why, yeah. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> how this works but yeah i think that's that's the best kind of filmmaking and this is a something i personally lament mm-hmm. is that um because we're cherry picking so many indie filmmakers mm-hmm. right now people are getting money too fast so mm-hmm. they're not able to really develop their craft oh you're talking about works. like the people that have gone from like a half million dollar film to then like a hundred million dollar star wars franchise exactly. or whatever yeah i'm not mm-hmm. naming names i'm just saying it's a yeah thing no that no and you know and some of them have worked out but the, it's it's amazing how many times you oh and then they had to fire him and hire someone else in and reshoot stuff and yeah maybe maybe there is you know maybe I'm very fortunate that nobody's handed me a hundred million dollars yet and I have to like just keep learning how to make stuff for nothing and be be inventive with the story because of the constraints of budget that's always my favorite especially me doing music videos now music video budgets just every year just like shrink by 25 percent so you know we always joke it's like I got a thousand dollars on an iPhone what can we do and it's like most of the time like pass and not make one but then every time you once in a while you go 
oh, we could try this. This would be perfect in in these restrictions. So you learn how to do these things. And it's um, I think one of the best examples we've found on this podcast is Cronenberg. Cronenberg mm. had nothing mm-hmm. for so long. And you look at Shivers or Rabbit. story. How did you make that? And so then be, being able to make those movies and make those like creative choices is what let him make movies like, like History of Violence, which yeah. is stunning, right? Or like uh, Christopher Nolan with Following. Or, exactly. you, know, you go back and look at people's first works, Blood Simple with the Coen brothers. You know, there there's a real grit to it and it's super independent and you see it, you know, you see the flaws. But they also but the knew- story and the actor. If you have stories it's a great story and great actors. Almost everything else is forgivable. And it's what movie could you make with what budget, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I bring up Kevin Smith on this podcast all the time because he wrote Dogma directly mm-hmm. after he wrote Clerks. He knew he couldn't make that movie mm-hmm. directly after Clerks. He wasn't ready as a director. He wasn't ready in, in terms of budget. So he had to wait until he had two more movies under his belt, and then he made that one. Wasn't, and I still don't know if it's totally a success. I for, in the end credits, no, I don't think in Clerks, but in Mallrats on, they would always do like Jay and Silent Bob will return in. Yeah. And I think feel like I'm, I might be wrong here. It's been years, but I feel like on Mallrats it says will return in Dogma. I think but so. But then he made Chasing Amy first, you know? like Which he needed to make Chasing Amy. Chasing yeah. Amy is a way better written film. Sure. But Mallrats is a better acted film. Yeah, because he had $10 million in Universal Studios. Um, a funny side note before we get off on too much of a tangent. <laughs> I just Smith. I was in a, a bar. What bar was I in here? But they were showing 80s movies and Running Man was on the TV. The Schwarzenegger yeah. movie from the 80s. Richard Dawson plays the game show host on The Running Man that Schwarzenegger's fighting against. And his like bodyguard is the White Street crew, crew top guy, LaForge. His character name is LaForge in The Running Man. That's the game show host in Mallrats. And his security guard is the same actor with the same character name from The Running Man, LaForge. I've never like it has to be that Kevin Smith loves this 100%. movie. And just, but I've just in all the times I've seen Mallrats over the years, never once made that or didn't know that there was a LaForge shared universe. That you know? movie's got layers upon layers upon layers. Man. I don't think people give him enough. Like I will give Kevin Smith some credit. You know, he's got his 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 definite shortcomings, but I think he yeah. he thinks about things. And there's a reason why yeah. he and Richard Linklater both got picked up and were able to continue yeah. careers. Out Richard of Linklater is FYI my favorite director uh, of all time. He does some really interesting things. I will he give does, him that. Does he does a lot, and he never makes the same film twice. But that's you know? talking about experimentation, right? Mm-hmm. Which is what we're what we're getting back to and I think that's why this movie is inspiring all this and Mm -hmm. why this film went to Sundance because it is a film that's an experiment but it's a very watchable experiment and at the end of the day your experiment has to be watchable did it okay we're gonna go into one thing I would love to read the screenplay for this and then see because I feel like the onset the cast that guerrilla style probably added a lot more you know like some films get better when they're shot and some films you read the script that was great and you're like Oh, this sort of is clunky now that it's shot and overthought. And but if I read correctly, this film had some sort of muddled distribution before it went to Sundance. Oh my friend, here <laughs> we go. This is this is the tale of Canada. Um, yeah. So is this water mine? That is your oh, water. Great. Look yeah. at that. You're welcome. Awesome. It's nothing yeah. but pure service here. Oh, perfect. Um, if anyone else wants to come be on the podcast, I'm happy to have you. You Wait, will have water. Do you know that this is actually vodka? <gasps> Yeah, we, we have had After Dark episodes on very mm. long nights, so that does happen. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so what happened was is that there was a, um, everyone told him there's no market for this movie. They're not going to 
not going to screen it in shows. Mm-hmm. They're not going to screen it in theaters. It's just too bleak. No one's going to want to sit through this. Oh, so uh, he had submitted to all the festivals, but mm-hmm. he got an offer from an American distribution company. And he was like, America, this is going to be great. This is 1999, right? Do we so, know the name? Can we say uh, the name? I don't even remember what the name yeah. was. So it's, uh, I mean, VOD wasn't even a thing. Sure, right? So yeah. you're like, you're not going to find an audience unless you find an audience in theater or on. You had to get it in Blockbuster, exactly. essentially. Exactly. Or yeah, VOD was the mm-hmm. only, or like a direct uh, video release was the yeah. only way you could do it. So he sold it straight away to that, then gets into Sundance and it makes a massive splash at Sundance, but he's already sold the distribution rights. So they, they actually but that, bury it. That distributor didn't think we have a Sundance like winning film or well respected film. They just buried it. Wow. Yeah. They so they just so it did get the a distribution VHS. nightmares never cease to amaze yeah, me. Because they were like, how do we market it? Because I think you would need someone very specific to learn how to be able to market a movie like this. Because there's an yeah. audience. I loved it. You loved it. Yeah. There's a lot of people that would. I um, found it. You know, exactly. you found it. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's one of those things where it's like, if you don't know how to market this mm-hmm. movie right, how the hell do you get people to watch it? Right? It's not for everybody. What's funny is there was just those articles going around because it's, it's the 20 year mark. But all those like 1999 was one of the greatest years of cinema. So there you go. This movie falls up there with like being John Malkovich and all these other greats of, of the era. But yeah, how, how would you market this film? You, I mean, they had Sundance. They had their marketing right yeah. there. And when Sundance still really meant something, right? Mm-hmm. Like getting into Sundance at this point was huge in the 90s. But indie, indie cinema, like home video, was the way to get movies out there. Yeah. You needed a, a, a cover story, in, or not even a cover story, but just a, a feature in Entertainment Weekly where they... You know, took took your little film and romanced it a bit, or a couple TV interviews, and because I feel like done it. people like to go at that mm-hmm. that point. We're looking at people going to art house cinemas, doing coke, do uh, smoking some <laughs> weed, and then talking about what they thought about it. Mm-hmm. So it was a time we were talking about movies, and we're not doing that in the same way anymore. No, I think, uh, no. one of the things we talked about when you were here for an hour and a half is how we're missing this level of movie making right now. That like we have a lot of small scrappy stuff getting made, and this does fall into small scrappy. But I think this. Is sits into an art house genre that's just like a level above mm-hmm. absolutely yeah so yeah this this for me falls to... in with with the clerks and the uh the robert rodriguez and and slackers and all that that kind of like early although it's it's a much even though it's gritty it's much more polished than those films but also it doesn't get too bare like it doesn't hit the same notes like kids that you brought up yeah. with. like at no point do you see any sort of like uh, alcohol or drug addiction like really shown you i know? did read greg's review and 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 where it was noted that tiff rejected the film yeah uh, greg klim q Who's, yeah, uh, who's a noted film uh, producer and uh, no- notorious critic? Is he, I guess? is he a producer as he well? He produces as well. He produces a bunch of um, oh, what is his name? Guy Madden's early oh, early okay. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, he's the uncle of uh, Ilya Klimke, who has been on our podcast. Oh well, there you uh, go. Exactly. Oh, it's every everybody knows everybody in Canada. Two, two degrees of separation. Yes, yeah, we yeah. know, Bob. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So it's. Um, I think there's something in that of you're watching. I think it's because it's Canadian. Right. Yeah. That's a big part of it is it's Canadian. We're told to sell, sell now, sell fast, sell when you can. You're not for all markets. Sure. Right. Fair. So we don't hold out. So I think there's something fortunate. We've we've brought up this before in um, Quebec cinema because mm-hmm. they don't have to compete with the Americans. Yeah. So they can make these incredible films. They can take these. And risks. They, they embrace their films. And not to, not to say that Ontario and the rest of Canada doesn't doesn't do that for select films every year. We can't say that they don't, no. you know, like rally behind behind certain filmmakers and certain films. But it is, you know, and there's great things like, uh, like shout out to First Weekend Club and like yes. people have taken it into their own hands uh, to, to make organizations to let people know that Canadian films exist and they can see them because it's not that people won't watch them. It's just one of these things where the majority of Canadians, just average Canadian that doesn't work in the film industry doesn't know 
where to see these movies and, and what happens other than the few big ones that, that, that come along every year. They play for a week at the Carlton. They play yep. for a week somewhere else. And even with that. Uh, oh, I've been it. Play for a night. And then you're like, but now what? Yeah. What yeah. do we do now? And it was the theater was filled with your friends and family. Exactly. So what do you do? Yep. Exactly. And it's, um. so then you have to find these things on VOD. You can, I would say you can make more money selling Girl Guide cookies than you could make an independent <laughs> film to all your friends and family. Yeah. Because the production costs and, and the wholesale price is cheaper than making a film. But they're paying you with love, love and respect, right? You're like, fair, I made fair. this. This is I have seen American movies. And, then every, and every takes. and every once in a while, a relative will come up to you and doesn't mean to insult you, but goes like, "That was really professional," <laughs> which translates that's Canadian for, "Wow, I expected this to be." absolutely awful and you're not as untalented as i thought who yeah. knew but that's like canada's expectation for mediocrity if you can just rise slightly above yeah. that bar it's like the old okay. if a tree falls it's a, if a canadian film you know, screens and nobody saw it did it ever exist so this is something that i find fascinating as we're talking about canadian mediocrity is this is a film i think could only have been made in canada because i think we have a different social system for uh, mm-hmm. our homeless people which is interesting to see how they slip through the net and they're yeah. very clear of being like yeah there's a protocol we talked about paperwork but it's also, also being so many degrees north and and you know especially in a city like winnipeg where it's it's not just cold it's, it's hellish cold. cold yeah and the, the stakes are higher yeah and i think that's what it is is they need to be inside mm-hmm. and what does that look like if you get kicked out of the shelter what are you doing? I mean, we just had a massive polar vortex, whatever you want to call it, yeah. here, and there was a lot of people in very. And that's just trouble. called January. Yeah, totally. It's why so many homeless people end up in Vancouver because yeah. they don't freeze to death, right? Oh, I, I go to Venice Beach, you know, every at least once a month. It's just like, yeah, and I, I've joked. I've said if I was homeless, this is where I'd be. Yeah, because be, I want to be homeless in California, anyways. I don't have to pay all this rent. That's a different thing, though, because I think in the in the states. Like, I, I've lived in Vancouver. I've lived mm-hmm. on Commercial Drive. I've been to Maine and Hastings, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, and there, there's very serious issues, and mm-hmm. it's very hard to look at. But um, in America, I think there's more mental health stuff that you see that you're like, oh, that's something else mm-hmm. entirely. So you see a little bit of that in Canada, but you don't see as much as you do in the States. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, with us, substance abuse is definitely more of an issue. Who yeah. knows? I don't know the numbers. But, yeah. but uh, I think that's something that's fascinating for me in this film is that, again, they allude to all these different things but they're never like oh you know he's getting high on whatever it's just like he needs to quit smoking they're not they're not making a statements on on either mental health or the social system and or putting a belief system you know it's like here's my liberal reviews of how we need to reform social justice and it's it's none of that it's just but it but it exists and they let the film it makes you you decide you know but part of it is like you if you're if you're human, you're going to sympathize for these people. Even if you hate the homeless or have had bad experience with the homeless in the past, I feel like it's one of these stories that's important because, again, if you you can walk a, literally walk a mile in their shoes in this movie uh, and, and learn a perspective that you maybe have just ignored or not fully understood. And they do such a great job, too, of um, the background characters because mm-hmm. in every shot that they're ending, you see a reaction to them and you see what the outside yeah, point of view uh, is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The eye roll, the whatever. They're like, I yeah. need the bathroom, dude. Moms you know? like, like, don't want their kids near them like they're monsters. It's yeah. fascinating. Mm-hmm. But again, so subtle. And there's so much subtlety into this, but not so much that you don't notice. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm sure on a rewatch, if I watched it a second time, like you've watched this multiple times. Yeah, many times. How did you do that? <laughs> uh, it's I, But I like films that are hard. There are certain movies that I have only watched once. Mm. Uh, one of them used to be Requiem for a Dream, but I, I showed it to my wife recently. But I went, I went almost twenty years before I was like, I can't watch that again. Yeah. Or uh, if you ever saw Love Liza with Philip Seymour Hoffman, it's just, it's just too depressing. 
or uh, that's me and dancer in the dark i, I can't watch dancer yeah in the dark well this just this december uh, at least in la i'm sure it was nationwide they had a 4k restoration of schindler's list oh, boy. i was like let's go see it everybody's like no, no. f no <laughs> yeah. i've yeah. got and i'm like why it's a beautiful they're like no i saw it once that's all i need to see you know yeah yeah yep. And even to get people watch it, watching it the first time, again, who do you market this to? Mm-hmm. How do you market it? How do you cut a trailer for well, this? Without ki- kids it is like that. If I if I didn't enjoy kids so much and want to rewatch it to like study the movie more, I mean, it's a hard watch. But I think that's the difference between watching a film intellectually versus watching a film for entertainment and for empathy. Sure, yeah. Right? To feel alive. Yeah. You only need to watch it once to get those like bad I'm not, feelings. I'm not coming home from the bar and throwing on, let's watch kids again in the background. You know? like, <laughs> if you yeah. are, then I think you're going yeah, to the wrong there's party. Yeah, something, there's something wrong. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah. Exactly. Oh, man. Okay, I guess we're at favorite moments. I could talk to you all night about this, but what's oh, your man. favorite moment? It's that, I think it's the very opening scene because from like the first line of dialogue and the situation in that like welfare office, it sets the tone so well for the entire movie and you instantly connect with like with Ben, with Gary Farmer. He's so good and it's just, it's depressing. So you walk out of and the scene goes on for a long time, but you think, okay, this is going to be a redemption story and something good is going to come of come of this movie uh, like uh, was that the road yeah you know where no, that's that's another one no where camera, yeah movie. you're like yep. something no they always like the good guys have to oh no nope. wait we're going here no and yeah it's just that but it, it really set it up to to love this character and you think okay we're going to see by the end of the movie he's going to get his house he's going to get his room and it just just keeps hitting you over the head but i think it's set so well from the beginning from the very beginning that's probably my favorite scene and then obviously when you again you think the big turning point is they're going to get there with the heater when they when they get to the Eatons, and it just doesn't go well you know it goes horrifically Mm -hmm. and i think uh for me i love these moments of black humor Mm -hmm. like i'm just such a sucker for like okay we're in like the worst most difficult place to sit in make me laugh mm-hmm. right and how are you going to do that and like so when he steals the money from the uh, the kids jar yeah. the kids fund jar from the donut shop and i'm like that's hilarious and horrible, horrible at the same at time yeah. and i'm so glad that that exists in here and the way they shoot it right where he just like you see his fist go in yeah. and just grab and you're like how did he get away with that one <laughs> and two it's just so audacious of yeah. course he got away with it yeah but yeah. i guess you know if it, i mean even even the homeless can disrespect people <laughs> totally totally it's like yeah who's worst off the kids yeah, yeah, or him yeah, like who needs yeah. that money more uh yeah i think that's just it's just such oh it's just such a great movie guys it's on amazon prime go watch it. you know you're doing that for your two-day shipping anyway yeah, you don't have to be, yeah, you don't even have to pay for it. It's exactly. there. Go watch yeah, it. They got a month yeah. preview. Make this the movie you watch. Go. <laughs> yeah, um, I, uh, yeah. I, it, it's it's renewed my my wanting to share it with more people, especially now all my American friends that have probably never seen a Canadian movie except Strange Brew. Exactly. Or uh, everybody talks about uh, anything by Paul Gross. They're like, oh, it's this. Or I have nev- bad I've, cop. I've, never, I've never once heard his name come up in, in America except <laughs> really? for my Canadian friends. Oh, yeah. the British love him. He's huge Yeah, in the UK. that makes sense. Yep, yeah, yeah, that makes apparently sense. Apparently, Do South is very big in the UK. They love that show. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I know. Did that play in America? They might have. It so, was an American so, show. So back to like the distribution of this film, though. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. I, so how I discovered it was Rogers. Rogers to me had this inventive program where they, I think it was called first choice or first cuts or so Rogers video. If you remember that Canada's version of blockbuster, uh, they started to release their own films. It was like Netflix original or, but, uh, and they would pick, take Canadian films. And I think it was once a month. They did it for a year about, uh, I think that's how I saw way downtown. That's how I saw 
Pitch, which is Kenny versus versus Penny's documentary before they made Kenny versus Penny. I think that's how I saw all of those. They were first cuts. So you go in the video store and be like, new releases. And they would have a box as Roger's first choice. I was like, oh, they're taking Canadian movies and just releasing them to Roger's video. And I thought, what a great, maybe one day I could have my film in there. Uh, and that's how I saw Heater. And I immediately, it was one of those ones where I saw it. And then unfortunately it got put in the, you know, the $5 bin at uh, at Blockbuster or at uh, Rogers. And that's where I ended up buying it. I'm like, nope, have to own this movie if I can't rent it anymore. So I, I saw it through through that home video release. So I just assumed everyone in Canada saw this movie because I saw it. Nobody saw this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same thing. It showed up on the American distribution. Because, of course, as you know, as you're learning about distribution, um, there's international rights. There's domestic mm-hmm. rights. There's different. You can even sell regionally, internationally. Of course, of like yeah. Just to Asia. Just to Australia. Yeah. It, all, yeah. it all gets Or just VOD up. rights or just internet rights. Exactly. Or, yeah. How do you want to sell your movie? Yep. Don't sell the whole thing, blanket filmmakers. <laughs> That's how this works. Um, I've learned. Everybody needs to know. Uh, yeah, this one, so the U.S. rights, which are the ones that you really want to hold on to. Yeah. Like that's the big important ones. Those got sold early on. The Canadian ones, it just kind of floundered a bit and then Rogers picked it up and then released it. Well, who it. did it in Canada? That, I think know? I don't know. That one I didn't check on. It's just the American one, the fact that he shame sold it before. That he sold, I know, I'm so, so irresponsible. <laughs> Not you. Shame on the shame people on who tried to release it the here. The fact that he's, well, I mean, welcome to welcome to Canada and our distribution But did it, did it play, do we know if it played it on like TMN or like... Like, nope, it didn't get a, a TV release. It didn't get a theatrical that's release. That's such in, a tragedy. In 99, people weren't going to watch this on TV, right? But I mean, it was on you TMN. Have, yeah, you might have gotten it on um, Showcase. Like, I could see this show yeah. on Showcase late night. But no, it didn't get picked up that way because we were watching uh, people get naked in European movies. So we are literally talking about a film that essentially most people have never even heard of, let alone seen. Which is an incredible film and highly prestigious. Welcome to my Canadian film podcast. Yeah, no, I like like I said, since since the day we started talking, I love I love this concept. Um wow. I just want to go rent the Royal Cinema and show this movie to everyone I know in Toronto now. It's so great. And you know what? Dude lives in Hamilton, so I bet you could get him to come in and come talk. I might do this. Do it. Yeah, it's such a beautiful film. It's so stunning and it's so relevant and it's so imp- I hate using the word important, mm-hmm. but it's so like it's so empathetic. Also, nobody coming to see the movie could bitch about how cold it is. No, outside. well, you just show it in the middle of August. And yeah, you're yeah, be fine, right? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, show it in the middle of winter, then I don't have to listen to, to people, people bitch, bitch about, about how about cold it. it is. Like, oh, <laughs> I tell all my friends now, I'm like, you choose to live here. Yeah, you can leave. I yeah. keep telling people that it's like this is a choice. You live here on purpose. <laughs> so stop complaining <laughs> yeah, about it. It's not like you suddenly yeah. woke up and went, "How did I get here?" Yeah. No, you picked this place. Sorry. I've never complained about how much sand I have in my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> lies. So many lies. <laughs> oh man. Okay. How do people find you? You and your work as you're dealing with distribution. Oh, that's easy. Uh, it's my full name, GavinMichaelBooth.com. That's a big collection of my music videos are on there. Uh, some of my film trailers and any news about what's coming up or social media. I'm uh, not on Twitter anymore, but Instagram, same thing. My full name, Gavin Michael Booth, or just find me on Facebook. Uh, and if you want to hear more about my thoughts, you can check me out on my Twitter because uh, I am on Twitter. Uh, I've not abandoned it yet. Uh, I am at Shrimpton over there. And then the podcast Twitter, which uh, is picking up some serious traction, guys. And we're having a great time over there. That is at RCM pod. So come talk to us. We'd love to hear to hear from you. I think that's just about everything. Gavin, do you want to go get a moose head? I sure do want to have alcohol. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. 
Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.